0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
1: A lot of the people that I speak with, I'm very much connected to um, the sourcing part of things. I figured out really quickly that if I was going to speak to good chefs that I needed to learn about farms, you know, and uh, about sourcing and about product. And a lot of the, the people that I interview either are small producers or they are sourcing their product from small producers
2: Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I am your host, Trevor Williams, and today on the show, it's going to be a little bit different. Not not so much, but you know how we usually interview farmers, ranchers, entrepreneurs, basically anybody and everybody in the agriculture industry and food science industry. Well, today we are going to cover food specifically, probably one of the best things out there, southern cuisine. So today on the show, our guest is a food and beverage author, Stephanie Burt. Stephanie also has a podcast called The Southern Fork, where she highlights Southern cuisine by interviewing chefs, restaurant owners, um, bakers, all sorts of people about kind of their impact on Southern cuisine and really highlighting some lesser known styles of cooking here in the South. So Stephanie and I are going to talk about all things Southern food, you know, um, the basic fried catfish, um, fried green tomatoes, some Apalachicola Bay oysters, stuff like that. Um, Some things that she likes in Southern cuisine, some things that aren't nearly as popular that people are slowly learning about, and also what some of her favorite and least favorite food trends are. And, you know, if you're here in Northwest Florida, or since Florida is such a tourist destination and you are coming to Florida, you know, whenever COVID um, travel restrictions lift, Um, Stephanie is going to give us some of her recommendations of some great restaurants here in Northwest Florida, like around 30A and Destin and here in Panama City. So this is such a fun episode talking with Stephanie about food and the importance and diversity of Southern cuisine. So be sure to check out her podcast as well. It's called The Southern Fork. I really hope you enjoy this episode and maybe it will leave you just as hungry as it left me. (laughs) All right. So anyway on with the show, and thank you so much for listening. Well, this is cool. All right. Well, Stephanie Burt, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I'm sitting inside my walk-in closet. So, you know, you've got a captive audience here. Literally, the door is closed.
2: (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) I love interviewing um, other podcasters because, you know, like we've already been geeking out about sound quality and recording and stuff like that. So, You have, um, as somebody that was born and raised in the South, the the name of your podcast, the Southern Fork podcast was immediately captivated me. And so I was like, all right, I got to interview Stephanie and learn about it. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and kind of how you got, um, the Southern Fork podcast going.
1: Um, well, I had had absolutely no plan. So I want to stress that from the beginning, um, but I was in, I went to grad school for American literature, and I was really interested in more of the folklore side of things. I'd been on and off a freelance consumer writer since I was 18, so I'd kind of do that side hustle, wait tables, all that kind of stuff while you um, are an adjunct instructor, you know, at a university. And... um I just got really interested in folklore. I was um, teaching American studies and just getting into food. I heard John T. Edge speak at an an event that he came to uh, Charlotte where I grew up. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he came to speak, and I was fascinated how food was really an introduction into a larger cultural discussion. So all of that is pretty heady stuff. Um, then I wrote a book, couple books of ghost stories. um, so Trevor, that's a lot of like blood stains. <laughs> <Ghosts>
2: <laughs> I can flush- imagine
1: Ghosts flush the toilet a lot, apparently, they like to pl- play, turn on and off water. and so I did a lot of research and wrote a few books of ghost stories. and it's I don't mean to be rude, but it started to get boring because there's a formula. Did you smell the cigar smoke? You know, I kind of got bored with it. So, plus, I just really wanted to live in the land of the living. So, I made a conscious choice to really start focusing on food and travel and visual art. And then it was travel and food. And then it became mainly food. And so, I've been a, a, f- food and beverage writer for a decade. Now I'm a multimedia food and travel journalist. So I work in video a little bit. I work in audio with the Southern Fork and I write and work for um, both print and digital publications. So that's a lot. (laughs)
2: It it sounds like this kind of the what you're on now is a little bit warm and a little bit more inviting than kind of the ghost stories. But that's, that's very interesting. I didn't know that about the ghost stories. That's pretty cool. I've been to Charleston and Savannah and I know kind of the avid ghost tour scenes up there, which are always really neat.
1: You know, and this was this was in the early two thousand and so early two thousands. So you know, there was that ghost hunters television show.
2: Yep, it mm-hmm. was kind
1: of like an updated Ghostbusters kind of thing. They had all kinds of equipment and stuff, and I kept getting asked about that. And I had a lot of people bringing strange things for me to look at at book signings like photos of demons <laughs> and curtains and things like that and it just it just really wasn't my scene you know
2: I could imagine yeah that's and funny
1: so I um I just started I've always been interested in cookbooks and vintage cookbooks and recipes and cooking and food media and I I just kept gravitating toward that part of the the bookshelf um you know, folklore, cookbooks are considered folklore. So there was just that. And then eventually I just ran away from teaching and was a bar manager for a year, lived on Anna Maria Island, Florida, and uh, just was a beach bomb and cooked and learned, you know, about more about seafood and then just started writing more about food from there.
2: Well, there you go. That's not a bad way to go. I mean, especially here in Florida. I mean, we when people think Florida, they really think seafood. I mean, it's probably beaches and seafood are the first things they think. I mean, we have so many and oysters Florida man. and scallops. Florida
1: Man too. And,
2: oh, and Florida man too. Absolutely. <laughs> Florida Man robs bank um in his underwear, just something weird like that. I'm like, yeah, yes, that's Florida. Yeah. Florida yeah. Man, Seafood, and Disney. That's pretty much it.
1: <laughs> exactly.
2: Exactly. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. So um, You know, before I forget about it, there is a show on Netflix called Chef's Table. Have you watched it?
1: Oh, yes. I'm very, very interested okay. in it. My friend Rodney Scott is on this season. I've had him oh, really? on the podcast. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, heck, yeah. I'll have to go watch that episode or, or look for that season. Yeah, my wife and I have been watching it, and it it's so wonderful because it kind of goes behind the scenes with like these big, big star chefs, like Michelin, Michelin star chefs all across the world, mm-hmm. and even some chefs here in the South, and it kind of shows kind of their whole journey and what what make them make um, or, or develop their like unique dishes and stuff like that. Right. And I think there's a new season, a new type of show or whatever. It's I think it's like Chef's Table Barbecue or something, which is, is coming out soon.
1: Yeah, that's right. That is on that. Yeah. And that's all American Pitmasters. Well, there's um, all Pitmasters. Um, they actually are on multiple continents, but yeah. Um, it's it's an amazing show. I think it really changed how food was filmed. And I have to often watch it with Kleenex. I know I'm a sap, but everything is just so beautiful and learning. And it's really difficult to be a chef at most of the levels that, that are filmed on these shows. You know, they're really passionate about something. And um, that's just a lot of work. And it You know, there's only so much time in the day. So them really devoting that passion and seeing how it's filmed and how it just really celebrates the individual work of these people. I just, you know, I get all teary eyed.
2: Yeah, some of the episodes are are really in depth and really moving. I mean, the cinematography, the music, the stories are just so good. Mm -hmm. Um, We I think we're kind of back on a few episodes, but one of the best episodes we saw was some chef in. I think Italy or France, and he was a butcher, and he has a butcher shop in his restaurant, and he was so happy-go-lucky, so just spunky, and that was one of my, our favorite episodes because it's so happy-go-lucky. Um, mm-hmm. I to remember what that chef's name was, but it was so good. Um, so, all right, I want to ask you this question. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to food, it seems like you know a lot about um, Southern delicacies and stuff like that. Um, Whenever people think of the South, they probably think like collard greens, catfish, fried chicken. What are some less known Southern cuisines that people might not know about?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so first off, the reason I really started The Southern Fork was because I had all these really great interviews with people behind the scenes. But when you're writing, you can really on, only usually get a couple quotes in, right? And so you, I was kind of losing this, a lot of the stories. Additionally, I used to teach a class called The South in Popular Culture, and I taught this at UNC Charlotte, and I developed this class for the American Studies program there, and it was really on the depictions of the South, you know, from Dukes of Hazard to Gone with the Wind to commercials, you know, all kinds of things. And I really wanted to show a full, round, diverse Southern cuisine because it's not just one southern cuisine. There's a lot of Souths, you know, Panhandle Florida is different than Miami or the Keys food, you know, and that's just one state. So um the diversity of the South I think is something that I really try to bring out. So um beyond catfish and collards and fried chicken and just saying those words, Makes me salivate. <laughs> I'm hungry. I would love some really good catfish right this second. I'm always kind of a little hungry. Like I'm always one of those people. Like I could eat. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there are other things uh, that are just regional delicacies that have just become really important. You know, from Alabama white sauce, which you know is a a very specific barbecue. I wouldn't even call it a barbecue sauce, but like a sauce and um. Alabama to um, tamales um, in the Mississippi Delta to like the West coast of Florida. When I mentioned Anna Maria Island, um, there is a big culture of eating mullet smoked mullet. Mm -hmm. And so they have Cortez hot dogs. So they put these smoked mullets on a hot dog bun, smoked fish dip, that kind of thing. Like I can really chow down on some smoked fish dip. Um, and then you just really get into regional things like purloo or purlo, um depending on how it's pronounced and um, written. But that is a South Carolina low country dish that is a rice-based dish. So there's a lot more than just shrimp and grits and collards and catfish. Um, and I'm two hundred episodes in, Trevor, and I just feel like, I haven't even begun to actually create a catalog that I can see in my mind for all of this.
2: Mm, that's a good point. I mean, it's so diverse. And, you know, that that's such a good um, point that, I mean, we've got Miami cuisine, we've got Southern cuisine, like from Georgia, South Carolina. And I, I might be a little jealous or a little biased towards catfish because growing up, my grandpa had a catfish operation. And so, we would eat catfish pretty much like once a week. And I mean, it was always fresh from the farm, really, really good. But then my grandma was born and raised in Cuba and, of course, grew up in Miami. And so we mm. would have Cuban dishes all the time for like Roca, Christmas, Valleja. Thanksgiving. Uh. Yes, um, some good flan. My mom would make, um, I, I always butchered the name of it, but like roast compollo, I think. It's like a Spanish dish with ham, little tiny, tiny shrimp in it. Um,
1: Ooh, like and
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was so good. Um, So, yeah, I, I feel like like Southern cuisine is so, so diverse. I mean, like you were saying, we've got barbecue, we've got sauces, we've got a whole bunch of stuff that really people from outside the South might not know about. Like they probably just think about cornbread and stuff like that. But I mean, we're so diverse, not only in terms of cuisine, but also the people that make that cuisine.
1: Absolutely. And like, honestly, we have some of the best Indian food. And uh, Vietnamese food, um, Indian food—I can think of uh, three people um, just off the top of my head. But um, most specifically, my friend Manit Showan, who cooks in Nashville, and she's um, a judge on Chopped, the Food Network show, and she just came out with a cookbook. Um, she has multiple restaurants and just makes. I want to eat everything that (laughs) we make. Like it's super, super delicious. So we have Indian street food in Asheville. We have, and we haven't even talked about beverages from, you know, artisanal liqueurs to beers to obviously whiskeys and really great gin. There's really great. There's a really great rum producer in Coastal Georgia. So there's just so much diversity and to really look at the South, I think you kind of have to remove that idea of understanding it, but also using the moniker of Southern. So Mm. because that, that is still in our popular culture, people think they know what that means, you know, what Southern means. And so my goal is to, surprise people with what is southern
2: i like that that's a very good point um kind of throws them for a loop i bet um and speaking of indian food real quick my wife and i just found a local place here in panama city it's called holy and it is the best indian food ever and um their butter chicken is delicious their kebabs their garlic naan is amazing and so we I order that place with DoorDash like or from, twice.
1: yeah you got to keep me away from the naan because <laughs> i am like straight up biscuits, bread, carb fanatic and that naan. I'm like, well, I'm just going to have another piece and it is really not good for me to eat that much.
2: <laughs> it, I, I I can agree with you. It is addicting. It is absolutely delicious.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: So, yeah, so your podcast is Southern Fork. You've interviewed like you were saying like farmers, bakers, brewers, a whole bunch of people. Are there any kind of like commonalities between those people and like their stories or what they're trying to do with um, with their food or with their dishes? Are there any common like kind of stories going along there that you've kind of discovered?
1: Yes, there's a few different things. Um, First, I think that a lot of people have done something else before Um, as far as if you're on the producer side of things. So sometimes like if they were a farmer, like I spoke to a farmer who's now growing some really beautiful, like specialty produce for um, many of the Charleston chefs, but he's also really changing um, the game here in the low country, growing ginger and turmeric in large amounts um, so that chefs and produce, you know, Makers can have ginger and turmeric fresh instead of, you know, shipped from Malaysia or wherever. And um, he was a visual artist for a decade and changed gears. You know, I spoke to a cheese maker who actually was a salesperson for Dell. I've talked to, um, back to the circle back to the um, um, Indian, um, Marwan Arani um, the chef and owner of Chai Panee, which has multiple locations, um, in both Georgia and North Carolina, actually, I believe was in real estate. And so lots of times people have a change of heart. They have a passion and they start to follow that passion and then it just becomes their vocation. And most of those people were at least Merwan. He, um, changed gears during the 2008 recession. So we're going to see, I think, some really creative things happening in the next few years in food, especially in the South, as this pandemic has made people, myself included, kind of either double down or decide to change, you know, from what you were doing because you're like, life is short. Um, There's also just a real focus on doing whatever it is that they're doing as a lifestyle. So, whether that is a chef in a kitchen um, or a farmer or a brewer, there is so much time needed to really go in the direction of perfection of craft that it is a lifestyle. So, I understand that because I'm also in a profession that demands a lot of time. It's not a clock in and clock out type of thing, right? So I see that really as being two, those two things as being continuums um, in the interview. But, um, and I also see that it's hard. It's really difficult to do this kind of work, whatever it is. So people come at it from a really passionate perspective, at least the ones that I want to talk to you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I know that makes sense. Have you kind of going off the whole COVID thing? Have you seen a lot of, um, a lot of restaurant owners and chefs? I mean, how have their businesses been doing? Have they been doing like a lot of, um, I mean, I guess selling straight to consumers and delivering food. Like how have they been struggling through COVID?
1: There's just been, I mean, it's been a really intense struggle with very little government intervention or organization when, um, It it makes me very sad and angry because in the good times, many, many cities will promote the restaurant culture as really a bastion of the culture itself of a city uh, or a town or a, you know, a way to make it a destination. And so when that's happening, um, it seems like, you know, you're putting a lot of energy into that. But now that these restaurants are really suffering, many have closed. Many have closed. Bars, especially in the South, where there are liquor laws, where they can't do to-go cocktails. Um, How And how can they do it? Nobody's going to go and buy, like, bar snacks from them after a while. You've got to, you know, maybe the first month, but not seven months in. So... We're seeing bars be decimated. I'm also seeing a lot of creativity. Um, the to-go game has really, really been upped. The idea of using local delivery services versus things like Uber Eats and stuff, because or Post Postmates, I think um, that takes a lot more money away. Uh, the differing regulations. The idea of a place being a tourist area like a Panama City or Charleston, South Carolina versus, you know, just more of a working place like Augusta or Columbia, you know, it's it's just been a lot. And I feel um, that they they just haven't had any direction. And so they've learned to talk to each other. But, you know, when the going was good. You know, you can't get enough of them and now, you know, they're not really being taken care of. And there are specific things about a restaurant and that do not work for the PPP stuff, which was a help for many of them, but not for all of them and especially not for the bars, you know
2: yeah no that's a very good point we've seen a bunch of bars around here where i mean they're struggling there were like two or three craft bars down here in saint andrews um that closed down i think they had been open for maybe three months and then COVID happened and then they just closed down i think one was permanent two they're just closing until things open back up again or whatever um but there are like some nice mom and pop breweries that would do like some craft brews every now and then and partner with local farmers and stuff like that and so we We hate to see them go and we're hoping that they do come back. But I mean, they there's not much that they can do. And I mean, it's sad. It's just a weird problem that we're all going through.
1: Well, and when a lot of the people that I speak with, I'm very much connected to um, the sourcing part of things. I figured out really quickly that if I was going to speak to good chefs that I needed to learn about farms you know, and uh, about sourcing and about product. And a lot of the, the people that I interview either are small producers or they are sourcing their product from small producers. And when they're hurting, it hurts all along a chain. But that chain doesn't have representation at a lobby board. You know, they don't have big operations. It's just one person trying or one family trying to keep it together and they don't have time to do PR marketing, you know? So though, what we're seeing now is the repercussions of months of changes in the supply chain for these smaller producers so that they maybe have to do direct to retail, right? Have you seen that, Trevor?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've interviewed a bunch of um, farmers and ranchers so far during COVID that they're transitioning from selling direct to restaurants or grocery stores to selling direct to consumers. And um, I, I think it was like two months into quarantine, I saw so many posts, cause I, I, I'm, I'm part of like all these Facebook groups of like farmers and stuff here in Florida. And there were so many that these huge like hundreds and hundreds of acres of like um, squash or zucchini farmers instead of shipping out to restaurants or grocery stores, they would just let consumers gr- drive up to their farm and they would have these giant boxes full of produce. Mm-hmm. And they would the consumers would buy them at a, a very great discount and yet the farmers would still make bank. And so, I mean, there's been this whole shift of the supply chain, like you were saying. And it's been, I would say one of the good things that has come out of all this is that people are more and more, concerned about you know like the farm to table movements like they were years ago like they're more concerned about supporting farmers locally which is fantastic and so if there's any bright points to come of this i think it is that like people are getting more and more interested in supporting locally and that whole farm to table movement is growing back up in popularity which is great i mean if, if there if there could be anything that could benefit from this which i mean i hope it blows over very soon but i think this whole farm to table thing is is pretty cool
1: and, and to that end, I think people are cooking more, um, mainly beginning out of necessity. But now you you figure out pretty quickly, if you want to do restaurant food, you've got to use the products mm-hmm. that the restaurant uses. And so suddenly, you know, you're like, why, why are my biscuits not rising well? Well, are you using a full fat cultured buttermilk? I mean... I didn't, I didn't know what that was 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, I just went to the store. I was like, here's buttermilk. So there's a lot of education that we've really lost in just a couple generations. Um, you know, with the space age and manufacturing really helping us get frozen meals and stuff to the, to the table quickly and canned goods and all that. And the, you know, early and mid part of the 20th century There's a great podcast that really dives into a lot of this over time. It's called Gastropod. If you haven't heard it, it's where history and science meet. It's my favorite food podcast. Oh, that
2: sounds super cool. I'll have to check it
1: out. super cool. So I'm kind of quoting what I've learned from them, but also just knowing stuff about history. And at the same time, man, if you are a woman in the 20s and having to go out and kill your chicken in the backyard versus a woman in the 20 years later – when your kids are bigger, you can just go to the butcher and buy chicken or buy frozen chicken. Man, why wouldn't you? Because you don't, you know, it's going to save you hours of time. But what we did lose in that convenience is we lost knowledge and, mm. and really the chefs, the culinary world and the cookbook authors and our grandmothers are the repository for that information. So it's still available it just takes a lot of research, right?
2: Yeah, it does. Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, like frozen TV dinners are super convenient. But I mean, they don't taste nearly as good as a meal that you cook and love over for like two hours that you're like baking stuff for hours and hours. I mean, like we baked cookies a few days ago, and I didn't read the directions. And my wife is an expert baker. And she's been telling me that it's not like cooking, you have to follow the recipe verbatim, or else it's (laughs) going to get messed up. And I kind of I was trying to surprise her and make like some peanut butter chocolate chip um, cookies. Well, I added a little bit too much peanut butter. They were still really good, but they weren't absolutely amazing. And so, I mean, that's something you're not going to learn until you cook and until you screw up and you make some mistakes. And so.
1: Exactly. And we think that, I think, you know, cooking is a craft and it's practice and we've gotten so used to having everything at our fingertips, um, from, you know, I can Google anything. I Googled you, you know, when you emailed (laughs) me, I Googled you quickly and I was like, okay, I can figure this out. And then, um, you know, we're, we're used to being able to do things quickly. We can order dinner quickly. We can, I mean, everything's super convenient. So I think we've lost the idea of really process. And that's what I've really been taught through the interview process both making a podcast is a process but interviewing people weekly about what they do I realized like to be good at cheese making you gotta do it a lot right
0: Mm
1: -hmm. good at like you know you can't just be like man I wish I could chop vegetables like that well he practiced for hours a day (laughs) (laughs) you know you can't just magically like do it so um so anyway, I think that's been a great lesson for me is to understand process. And there's there's um, a satisfaction in that process. But if you're not used to doing it, it, it can really, you know, you've got to kind of get in the mode, right? You, it, you get kind of agitated. There are some times I'm like, I don't really want to do this. And there are some things I'm never going to learn how to cook. I'm like, nope, not making it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to try once, maybe five times And then just give up on it
1: <laughs> Maybe, maybe It depends, but there are just some things I know enough to know that I'm never doing it <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's true I've seen, I can't tell you how many times I've seen Gordon Ramsay cook a beef wellington And I'm like, that looks really good But I don't think I could ever cook that And so I don't know if I'm ever going to try it Although it, it does look not too hard But mm-hmm. I don't know
1: Yeah, you just kind of you you kind of have to make a decision before you go down that road, right?
2: Mm -hmm. That's true. And so my wife bought me a smoker for Christmas and I've smoked about probably about 12 things so far. And I mean, that's one of those things where I really started to understand like smoking and cooking a lot better whenever I got that. Because I mean, the first thing I smoked was a rack of ribs and they were um, not moist at all. They were good, really spicy. But it's just one of those things where each time you smoke something, it's going to get better and better because you're going to learn better about how to control the heat, how to control the moisture, how to Mm -hmm. like if you need to wrap the meat or not, or if you need to season it better or whatever. And so, I mean, it's one of those things where the more you do it, the better you're going to do it and the better the food is going to taste afterwards. So you just got to take that first step and then first meal might not be good. The second meal might not be good, but the 10th or 12th will be pretty good and the 50th meal will probably be delicious.
1: You've got to see it as, you know, an experiment and fun, mm-hmm. at least, you know, um, going into it. Yeah. But I, I would say that so many of the people that I've interviewed have have that exact thing. You know, they they got just enough out of it the first time to go, I think I can do it better the next time, you know? Like if it's completely abysmal, like if your peanut butter cookies were just all one cookie, then, you know, you might not make it again. But if they were just not as good as you wanted them to be, you might try it better next time. And you already know what you did wrong. So it'll be better the next time.
2: Exactly. All got to take it in stride, learn a thing or two. Um, uh, So before I forget, I like to ask everybody this question that has a podcast on here. How do you go about developing a good interview? I mean, do you have like notes of every question you want to go for? Or do you just kind of have it off the cuff? What's your whole plan about developing that quote unquote perfect interview?
1: First, there's no perfect interview.
0: (laughs) Correct. (laughs) So, (laughs) um,
1: So when I started, I had this, I was known for writing profiles of people, artists, makers in general. And chefs were definitely a part of that. So when I started the Southern Fork, it was one-on-one interviews. And I had already been interviewing for 15 years, you know, for writing. And so I didn't even think about what makes a good interview. Because I was, I thought I knew, right? Because my my articles were good. And then I realized that it pretty quickly when I started listening, I'm like, this is bad. i gotta learn how to do this so i clocked in trevor i clocked in i listened to every one of oprah's super soul sunday podcast sessions i've listened to she's one of the best interviewers in the business i listened to terry gross fresh air i listened to her and oprah and I, I like Oprah because Oprah is intelligent, but she's also personable. She's And that was kind of the vibe I was going for, you know. But um, she was able to get really good quite, you know, answers out of her people. And I figured if I listened to stuff about food, I wouldn't be able to notice the underpinnings of the actual interview style. So I listened to... Terry Gross, and Oprah. Right now, I'm on Krista Tippett, who has this podcast called On Being. She's amazing. Um, And so I just listened, and I tried to figure out how they asked their questions. I asked the same four questions of everybody at the end, but I didn't do that for the first couple of years. Um, I come with an idea of what I want to start with to begin but I really, really try to be present in the interview if if I can help it at all. I have socially distanced mics now for COVID times, so we can sit 12 feet apart because I've got six-foot cords. Um, but I love to be in the room with people, in case you're wondering. People that are passionate makers probably have a lot on their mind, and it's great to get them focused. But I really like to have a conversation. So I don't plan questions. And for some of my guests, that doesn't work well for them. They don't like that idea because they like to prepare. But I, what you have to do, in my case anyway, is to let them lead in a lot of ways, let them hear what they're talking about, and then ask a follow-up question. This is very different because I'm talking the whole time. But over the years, I've learned because I listen back to my interviews because I have to edit them. It's like the worst thing and the best thing. (laughs) Oh, my Uh,
2: gosh, it is. That's so true.
1: But you get over it. People are like, I could never listen to my own voice. I was like, it's my job. I have to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I just would be like – shut up. Shut up. Speak less. Don't interrupt. Let them finish. Let a space fall. If you don't, you can always edit it out if it's awkward, but like give a breath. And I still struggle with that. Um, I still have so far to go to be a good interviewer, but that keeps me very interested in the actual work that I do. Which is interviewing people, so I just want to do that better each time.
2: there you go, that's awesome yeah i've I've listened to just a few of your episodes so far, but I mean, your interview style is amazing, and I mean the more I go back and listen to so my episodes like editing them, I'm like, dude, stop talking, just let them go. um, let them carry on the conversation because nine times out of ten, you want to ask a question. But they're gonna bring up something which is like ten times more interesting that you never would have thought of. And so I feel like the more you try to plan out an interview, you're gonna keep stuff from that, like natural topics and natural discussions from happening. And so I mean, it's it's weird. You wanna prepare, but you don't wanna over prepare. And so really the guests can do all the talking and they will bring up a lot of really, really good points.
1: Right. And and I you know, I still think about this. Um, I've had some hard interviews this year um, because I kind of tried to make some of them pretty um, relevant to the time, you know, so I've had to ask some hard questions. And Krista Tippett says that she tries to, she has a whole TED Talk, which I, of course, downloaded, (laughs) you know, (laughs) immediately. So she talked about, um preparing enough that the person that you're speaking with understands that you're prepared and you've read. She interviews a lot of authors and poets and stuff. So um, it's good to know that somebody has done research on you before they ask you questions, right? Mm. Then you feel comfortable and you can kind of start from B instead of C. I mean, instead of A. So, um, I am always trying to prepare a little more, and but yet not direct that conversation. So it's it's I don't know I don't know. I try not to think about it too much. But obviously, I'm thinking about it way too much. So. <laughs>
2: it's a it's a slippery slope. I mean, you never know how much to prepare, but you always feel unprepared. It's it's weird. It's a fun thing. It's so fun to interview people and learn more about them, but it's so it's so complicated. Like there's no right or wrong way really.
1: Right. And, uh, I also have a for you know, about a 40 minute show and I have bumpers and I have a little segment at the end now. And so I have to kind of get to it. Right. And mm-hmm. later on I'm like, we didn't even talk about blah, 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 blah. But I just feel like in a rant, not a rambling conversation, but, um, meandering conversation, like the conversations that I really go for are after a while, you've got about 30 minutes before people are like, okay, you know, so I try to, I try to keep that in mind for the listener.
2: I like that. That's because I mean, you've also got to think about your listener, like how busy they are, if they might think some points are annoying, or they want to learn more about points that you don't cover. So it's weird. It's such a weird thing, but it's such a cool thing. Um, It
1: is fun. I feel like old-timey radio because I always loved, like, Paul Harvey.
2: And the rest Um, of the story. Oh, yeah. I love Paul Harvey.
1: I'm way too, like, I'm showing my age. But, I mean, (laughs) I was really small, but my mom would play it on the way home from when she picked me up from elementary school. And I just was always fascinated by that verbal storytelling.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. If you, I don't know if you've heard, but um, Mike Rowe's podcast, The Way I Heard It, have you listened to that?
1: I haven't, but I it's, will now.
2: Yeah, it's very much like he says he got his inspiration from Paul Harvey. And so his are really, really good. Um, his are well written, well spoken. So check those out. He's one of my dream guests to have on the show. He's really cool. Oh, Mike That's- Rowe. <laughs> So, going off of that, I know, you know, there's a lot of really good food trends out there. I know some people love and then some people hate, like the rainbow bagels, stuff like that. Yep. Are there any? That's
1: right. I hate the rainbow bagels. Really?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've had one, but they seem a little odd. But I mean, I, may have I don't to try want to eat one. all
1: that dye. No, I do not want to <laughs> eat all that dye.
2: <laughs> you know, I, I tried the Dole Whip thing from Disney, which I don't know if that really counts as like a Southern food trend, but uh it wasn't the best thing in the world i'm not a huge fan of pineapples and it was like a very pineapple ice cream so yeah i could take care to leave it but eh, have you tried it
1: yeah i've had a dole whip mm-hmm mm-hmm it's okay. It's, okay it's okay All
2: right. yeah <laughs> well there you go <laughs> so are there any not so great southern food trends that you've seen like some th- not maybe not personally but just some things that not everybody is kind of game for
1: <laughs> well, I have to probably start uh, on a, something that isn't just a southern trend, but something that I think a lot of my listeners have come to know about me. I really, really hate cake pops. I hate cake pops. <laughs> really? I can't, I don't want to see them. I, I mean, like when I go to the Harris Teeter and I see the Starbucks inside the Harris Teeter and I see that little thing of the cake pop standing, my immediate thought is all the hands that squished that cake batter and mm. then covered it with a, some kind of white chocolate that can last in static, you know, for five months as they ship it and it sits there. I can't stand cake pops. I think it's a horrible trend. Cake doesn't deserve that. Cake is a beautiful delicacy. There's all kinds of cakes from different sponges, different toppings. No, no, I do not like it. No cake pop
2: for you. That's funny.
1: Anti-cake pop, hashtag. (laughs) So um, a few years ago, I mean, they're just major trends. Um, A few years ago, you know, it was pork belly everywhere.
2: Mm, yeah i remember that that's true
1: i mean let's just be real that's just thick bacon okay
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's not something new it's just thick bacon
0: <laughs> so you're
1: just serving me bacon i get it it's yeah. great i like pork belly but like i was traveling a lot i was working for this uh the local palate magazine at the time and i feel like every time they were like you have to try our kale and pork belly and i'm like no I don't want to, Um, but of course you, you need to, you have to, that was a trend. I do think that the trend of the overdone Bloody Mary is kind of yucky.
2: What's an overdone Bloody Mary? I'm not a fan of Bloody Marys, but what's an overdone one?
1: So it's one, number one, it's in a pint glass or larger. Hmm. So that's a lot of spicy tomato juice and stuff. And then they have like the the loaded Bloody Mary. It's like brunch, you know, um, squared. And I've seen ones with burger sliders, uh, lobster claws, um, all these different garnishes that have just become, especially in coastal cities in the south. It's. I'm sure it's more of a national trend, but I've seen them a lot around places that people vacation. Um, And so you get this huge drink with all this soggy stuff on top of it (laughs) as garnish. And, you know, it's got fried asparagus and, uh, you know, three shrimp. It's, you know, it's a whole seafood tower half the time. I think a Bloody Mary should be short. So it should be 50% vodka and 50% your Bloody Mary mix. And it should have a simple garnish of either an olive, pickled onion, pickled okra, pickled green bean, and maybe a lemon. So I don't like to see those kinds of trends. I'm generally not a fan of, like, whatever is trending on Instagram.
2: Mm, Okay.
1: I'm not anti that, but I'm kind of like, I want it to be have substance and have good food and like you know that that bloody mary is not about how good the drink is right
2: oh yeah so I'd no, just it's just helping you their hangover drink. right
1: i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i've never had one Neither <laughs> like, have I. if i see no i've had bloody mary's but if i see one of those loaded bloody mary's i'm like this isn't the place for me i should go <laughs> <laughs> i need to
2: leave here stat
1: <laughs> That no one's hilarious. gonna listen to my podcast after this. God, they'll be like, "I love cake pops and Linda Bloody Marys." <laughs> she sounds horrible. I,
2: the two things I like, I can't believe she doesn't like them. That's too crazy.
1: Yes, That's so exactly. funny.
2: Yeah, I've seen I've seen some of those Bloody Marys you're talking about, um, and they are huge. I'm like, at what point do you just want to order? I don't know, some jambalaya or like some <laughs> seafood instead of getting a huge thing with a lot of tomato juice and vodka and some shrimp on it and stuff. like Yeah, like just
1: make it – let me have a fork, you know? (laughs) (laughs)
2: How am I supposed to drink this shrimp? Like how is that supposed to work out?
1: (laughs) Right, exactly.
2: That's funny. All right, so I asked you earlier, and I'm excited to learn about these. So I have grown up on the Gulf Coast of Florida my whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, Apalachicola, Panama City, Destin, 30A, What are some hidden gems around the Gulf Coast of Florida that you've kind of heard about, whether it's like breweries or bakeries or farmers or restaurants or whatever? What are some hidden gems that you've learned about in this particular area of Florida?
1: Well, um, I did a trip a few years ago to Apalachicola, which I think is one of the most beautiful places in the world
0: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, that I've been to. And I was there the day the horizon um, rig blew. Oh, wow. And um, it was so horrific to feel that, w- that like, they didn't know what was going to happen, and it was so idyllic. Um, so I know that place has really, really been impacted from the oil spill. Um, and it's really, you know, those oysters were once heralded as some of the best. But, um, so I'd love to see that, that area still be rehabbed and those oyster, um, diver, not divers, but oyster fishermen, you know, get their license, have licenses come back. It just looks like now the, um, not to be a downer, but now like that industry is really kind of dying there. But I, I was there the day it kind of started and it was ever since then, I've loved an Apalachicola oyster. I had my first Apalachicola oyster raw. At Peg Leg Pete's on Pensacola Beach, Florida.
2: That's a pretty good place. place. That's not bad at all.
1: I like Peg Leg Pete's. It's just (laughs) a divish bar for bloodies and raw oysters and some beer. Not not the
2: tall Bloody Marys, though, right?
1: Nope. Mm -mm. I have to (laughs) order it short now. I want a short Bloody Mary. Like, don't bring that other stuff. (laughs) Um, I really liked, I stayed at... um, Alice Beach a couple of years ago. Oh, Alice is Beach is
2: very, so nice. Yeah.
1: Very she, she. And, um, I had a chat with, I can't remember Drew's last name. I'm sorry, chef Drew, but he cooks at Kaliza. Okay. The restaurant. there, But he has, he has, um, you know, Northern European or, um, eastern european roots and so sometimes he'll do like a schnitzel and stuff you wouldn't expect that on 38 it's amazing stuff and he i've just really enjoyed getting to know him and chatting with him in that same area is the black bear bread company i think um it is delicious Really? They're, okay. they it's a really really great bakery. It's owned by the same people I think that own Bud and Lefties. Is that the name of a pretty iconic? Yes. Place? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's another restaurant by them, but they basically um, one of the owners wanted good bread and couldn't source it, and so he was like, "We're going to open a bakery."
2: Well, that's one way to do it. There you go. They were
1: nominated. They were nominated for best outstanding baker couple years ago so you want to definitely check that out let's see what am i working on now i'm going around pensacola beach um i haven't spent as much time on 30a as i'd like to um there's also the fisher fisher's marina on orange beach alabama right over the line yeah that that place is is really cool
2: i've been there a couple times
1: Mhm. That's not a hidden gem. Everyone knows about that. It's really <laughs> good. Accurate, <laughs> yeah. Um so I'm sorry I don't have a ton to to offer you um in that area but I think if you can get stone crab claws you should eat them directly there. Um Longboat Key on right below Anna Maria on the west coast further down, they have a really good stone crabs there and so I try to hit the keys when I can, you know, so. But
2: the keys are also good. My wife and I went there on travel a few, I think about a year ago. And honestly, I can't remember how many slices of key lime pie we had, but it, <laughs> w- it wasn't enough. They were all delicious.
1: My thing is conch fritters and mm, um, okay, yeah. when i Yeah, so which I'm you know, the sourcing is now different. And so I don't know how I feel about those, but that's another podcast for another day.
2: So. <laughs> True. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, no, those are good. Those are good choices or, or good, um, good options. I, I've had um, Appalachical oysters and they are delicious. And I'm not sure if you've heard, but they actually shut down the whole um, oyster collecting system, I think for like five years so that they, yeah. they can grow yeah. and kind of reestablish, which I hope in five years, it's what it was like decades ago. When I mean, when you think Florida oysters, it was Apalachicola. And so, hopefully, exactly. And I better. think
1: that's the right thing to do. And I, I wasn't going to go into all that. I'm sorry. But um, I think it's the right thing to do. But what's happened is a lot of those people were aging out of the mm-hmm. industry anyway. So that just kind of hastened it. So I hope that it will revive. Um, I know that Murder Point Oysters down there is doing some good stuff, not directly in Apalachicola, but more like closer to Mobile, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when I'm on 38, I'm thinking about fried fish sandwiches.
2: <laughs> there you go.
1: <laughs> I love them with They're- fries, you know, fries oh, and yeah. fries. Yeah, Those
2: are good, so- all the fries. There's a good little... Um, not like a hipster bar, but it's called Neat over... I think it's on Alice Beach, and that place is really cool. They have some really nice signature yeah, cocktails Yeah, I've been there, there.
1: too. Yeah, they've had, there they go. have some really nice craft cocktails there. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah,
2: they're really neat. I keep telling my dad um, that I need to take him there one day because he likes a good old, like, you know, a, a nice drink every now and then, and I'm like, I need to take you to Neat. And he's like, what's that? I'm like, I'm not going to tell you. We're just going to go, and he'll be... Be There's a good the
1: bottle way. shop connected to that too that has a lot of rare whiskeys. So you you definitely need to take them.
2: Oh yeah. I heard about last time we went, we didn't go into that room, but I did hear about that. So yeah, we'll have Yeah, they
1: got that. some good stuff. I mean, get the credit card ready.
2: Oh, yeah. I might have to save up a while before I go there, but there you go. I and mean, 30A is a little little pricey, but I mean it's the experience, I guess.
1: <laughs> That's right. That's right.
2: Well, Stephanie, this has been so cool. So you've got the podcast, um, the Southern Fork. If people Mm -hmm. want to listen to you, listen to the podcast, check you out, see what you're doing, where can they go to kind of follow you?
1: Oh, um, well, pretty much anywhere you will listen to streaming audio. Um, I'm on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher. But my big news is I've just been picked up by iHeartRadio Podcast. So um, if they listen to any of those areas, pretty much Overcast, Libsyn, um, if you player fm so you can also stream at the southernfork.com. but i find that most people listen to um podcasts on their mobile mm. because they are mobile when they listen to podcasts
2: Accurate, um, yeah.
1: and, and you can also ask alexa to play the southern fork so
2: well that's fun alexa have you, have you tried the okay google thing if you have a google speaker
1: I don't have a Google speaker, so I haven't done it. Mm -mm.
2: Okay. We have one. You're not missing out because they're kind of freaky because sometimes they'll listen to you, but I can go like, okay, Google, listen to Farm Traveler Podcast. So I'll have to try that with um, the Southern Fork and see if it happens.
1: That's great. And also I'm about to take, um, well, if you're probably going to be listening to this after I've gone home, but... You can get a lot of previews um, of who is coming up on the show, and you can also connect with me on Instagram. I'm pretty active on Instagram. And uh, so lots of times, not everything makes it onto the show, but I'm doing multimedia travel and food research, so it makes it somewhere. So you get to see where I'm going and what I'm eating and what I'm checking out. So it's a good place. I try to do better than... um, You know, I don't want to Instagram post that much, but I try to clock in, do a good job.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I found your Instagram right before I interview and it made me really hungry. So I'm probably going to go eat lunch (laughs) before I look at your Instagram more so...
1: Well, that's great. I want catfish now and I don't have catfish for dinner. So thanks, Trevor.
2: <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Sorry. Catfish is delicious. Every, every Anytime I rarely eat it at any other restaurant and anytime I do, I'm like, you know, it, it just doesn't compare to Papa's catfish. So it's one of those yeah. things.
1: <laughs> Got it. Got it. Thanks so much for asking me and spending some time with me this afternoon. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, likewise. It was fun to kind of connect with you. I can't wait to listen to more of your episodes. Southern cuisine is one of the best things on earth, and I can't wait to see where you go and kind of all the more stories you you, um, interview people about. So thanks for being on. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Again, our guest today was Stephanie Burt from the Southern Fork podcast. Be sure to check her out and the podcast at thesouthernfork.com. And um, thank you so much for listening. If you were on iTunes, consider leaving us a review. We are at 63 five-star ratings on iTunes, which really helps us show up in the search results. So consider leaving a review on there, whether it's five stars or you can leave a written review And if you're one of our many, many, many listeners not on iTunes, like you're on something like Spotify or Castbox or Anchor or whatever else, consider sharing with a friend. Organic growth helps us out a ton in getting new listeners to learn more and more about where their food comes from. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or if you might know somebody that should come on the show, feel free to email me at farmtravelerseries at gmail.com. And I will be glad to call or be glad to email you back and talk to you about any guests or topics that we can cover on the show. Okay. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, we'll see you next week. Okay. Bye.
0: I'm Will Cooper and you're
2: listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.